thank you for listening to Life Struggles, brought to you by your host, which would be me, Christy Collier. Today I'm going at it alone, talking to Mike Fiore, discussing his life struggle of abandonment, low self-esteem, and turning to alcohol and drugs to give him a better perception of himself. Listen to Mike in his own words on Life Struggles. Hi, please help me welcome Mike Fiore. Mike, hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity and um, just another day blessed being able to be woken up and having certain kind of freedoms I didn't have in the past. So I think today is a really neat day to do this. It's Father's Day. Mm -hmm. And so first of all, I want to know how you feel about your father. Um, Is your father still alive? No, I actually lost my father to this disease. My father was a heroin addict, shared needles. He got HIV, died of AIDS in 2009. Um, My father, you know, like uh, the disease runs in the family. My grandfather was an addict. So I never even got to meet my grandfather. He passed away before I was even born. He passed away when my father was young. Um, My father passed away when I was relatively young. So as you can see, there's kind of like 23 23 yeah and uh I wasn't really I wouldn't consider quote-unquote a full drug addict then because my life was still somewhat manageable I didn't need it to function after dad passed away I kind of followed in his footsteps to feel closer to him um you know like I was told the story at his funeral how when my grandfather passed away my father kind of went off the reservation. So when I was told this story, it kind of gave me like a green light to kind of follow in his footsteps. My father met a woman with two children who wound up being my mother. I met a woman with children, raised their kids. You know, like I got on methadone. My father was on methadone. Um, The only thing I didn't do was the heroin uh, because I seen what AIDS does to the human body and deterioration that occurs and the quality of life, what it becomes. So I never touched heroin. My drug choice was opiates and everything else you know that was out there at the time um but not having him here um it's difficult for many reasons I didn't get resolution or any kind of I had more resentment with myself when he passed away because I was high when he flatlined at the hospital I was high at his funeral um so like I you know felt less than um, so for a long time, that was my quote unquote excuse to get high because I was a bad son or whatever, you know, the, our addiction speaks to us in our own voice and it just, you know, it knows how to, knows how to mess with us. So like a day like today, you know, like even Mother's Day, cause my mother passed away from AIDS as well. Um, a day like today, I take everything off the plate, you know, like I, I busy and productive are two different things, right? Productive is doing something with purpose. You could do nothing and and have a productive day. You don't always have to be busy and you're doing a million things. So a productive day for me today is taking everything off the plate, Um, not overexerting myself, not putting my, allowing myself to sit through these feelings, which are very uncomfortable, sadness and things grieving, you know, it's uncomfortable, but they have to be addressed, you know, like, uh, 
they they call this a marathon and not a sprint. And the reason being is because if you sprint, you got to stop to catch your breath. But when you stop, everything that you've been running from hits you all at one moment. So like I learned the art of stopping in order to move forward. And today that's what I'm doing. I'm stopping everything, you know, like uh, I'm just sitting with myself. I'll journal if I need to journal. I'll speak to, you know, the people that are closest to me and let them know what's going on internally. But it, it today's a day for me to appreciate the time I had with my father rather than. So that's what I was going to ask you then. Um, you know, some people like to visit a gravesite on Mother's Day or Father's Day or Christmas or their birthdays or something like that. Some just kind of, I don't know. Can you see? Is there? Oh, it's right here. Okay. This is, this is my father. All right. And good looking man. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Looks usually back there in that corner in the the frame. Um, He chose to be um, cremated. Okay. Uh, He was a veteran. And so they put him in a wall and unfortunately he passed away when he was um, going to a big AA conference in Salem, Oregon. And so he drove, he was, he drove, he took his camper and he drove and they were all going to like be at this big campground and, and everything. And then um, I don't even remember the name of the building. They were going to like all meet at, but they were going to stay for a week. It was, it was a retreat. Like, um, and he had a stroke right outside of Portland. And but he got himself to the veterans hospital. And while he was at the hospital and they were checking him, he had a massive heart attack. And uh, he did that. He never healed from that. They told me that he needed surgery, but that he, the stroke and the heart attack had taken so much out of him that he needed about six weeks of recovery before they could even do surgery to repair the damage that his heart had taken. And in that six weeks time, he stayed in the park, you know, where the RV was parked. And uh, it was kind of hard for me because there wasn't cell phones then. He actually died when uh, I was 28. Okay. Um, He was far too young. Um, he was 52. So same age as my dad. My dad yeah, was 52. That's that that just felt so young to me. To, it is you know. very young. But um, but I got friends and everything else that lost their parents when they were like seven years old and eight years old. And so I think I feel blessed for as many years as I did have him. But at any rate, um, long story short, uh, because it was there. And it was a lot of money to transport a body by airplane and everything. You know, they, they're like, well, we'll just, you know, we've got a beautiful veterans wall here in Portland and blah, blah, blah. I, I understand they're not really there. And, you know, he was in heaven and all that kind of stuff. But I hated it because I was so far away and I couldn't, to me, do anything physically in honor like on veterans day and all that kind of stuff and so i finally requested his ashes 
And so I have them. Good for you. I have them. My other siblings, they don't believe in that stuff. They don't visit graves and they, it was no big deal to them. So they didn't, you know, want to share in it or anything. Um, as you know, though, they're all addicts too. And that's not something that they think about, but no, I do. definitely not. So anyway, but I don't think that has anything to do with how they feel about that stuff. I, I just think that's just not facing things. Either that or we lack a, a spiritual side when we're still in active addiction. You know, it could so be, except, well, um, my one my one brother that passed away had brain cancer. He he did not do any kind of drugs or okay. alcohol. Um, and he didn't believe in it either. Okay. Um, and that's okay. It's okay. He had his own, he had his own way. You know. Yeah. So I just wondered. So you know, do you do you do something like that or? Um, believe it or not, in the, the 13 years that my dad's been gone, I live in California now. I'm not in New York City. He's right. in New York City. But I didn't even visit his grave once since he passed yeah. away. Even when I was in New York City, a lot of it was due to you know like shame and you know the only time I got to see his headstone is when my mother passed away on Thanksgiving. Kind of said goodbye to both of them because at that point I already knew I was moving to California in a couple months. Um, but like for me, the, you know, grieving is a difficult thing, and it, and it's hard on everyone, not just addicts. And what I realized is I don't I don't mourn my parents no more. I celebrate them. I right. celebrate them by how I live today. I live my best life uh, because of the things I learned from them, and you know what I'm saying things that the hits, quote unquote, hits they took from me and allowed me to see what life could become if I keep going down that road. Plus, I speak to both of them more now now that they're not here than when they were alive. You know, I would go weeks without speaking to them because, you know, they're there. But now I don't go a day that I don't speak to either one of them because they walk with me in my heart now. And I don't look at the time I'm not going to have with them and all the experiences and the opportunities and the version of myself I am today as something that, you know, like I appreciate the time I had with them. It would be selfish, in my opinion, for me to be upset about the time I didn't have with them because that's like me saying the time I did have with them wasn't enough when one day was enough for both of them. So like my, my perspective is, you know, just to accept everything and expect nothing out of nothing. So like I, I accept the time I had with them. I accept the love that they gave me. I accept everything. We're human at the end of the day. We're all, we're all playing with a deck, a hand of cards. Some of us are, you know, that, that hand is a little more unfortunate, but that doesn't mean we have to lose our life though. You know, like you could still win a card game with nothing in your hand. So like, it's how you play the cards. So like, I'm just learning how to play my hand of cards a little bit better than I used to in the past. Okay. So, um, I am right with you celebrating my dad's life and cherishing the time that I had with him. I'm not sad. I'm, I'm actually happy that he's in a better place and actually that he doesn't have to go through the world we're going through right now. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a difficult way. There's a lot of change occurring in this world right now, but I also see it as an exciting time in the Earth world right now because of all the change that's occurring. 
you know, like there, there's a lot of work that could be done for people that want to help other people. So like, I, I appreciate oh, that. Definitely. But he was already doing that. He was already an AA spokesman going all over the world. Oh, good for him. Speaking. So, you know, that, that was his, like, that was his way of giving back constantly and yeah. helping people constantly. And then he also, you know, had, was a sponsor for somebody and then local locally, um, you know, he went to a, didn't matter when it was, when it was, where he was, he found an AA meeting. Yeah. I or mean, they found the drugs. And he drink found an AA meeting. Yeah. So his, he, his legacy is living on through people that you will never meet and never know. If he well, was. You're true. Yeah, that's true to a certain extent. But I'll tell you what, this just absolutely amazed me. So he started out in a recovery place in Des Moines, Iowa. Okay. which I didn't, you know, nobody got to go up there and see him or anything during that. But um, when, when I brought him back here, disasters back here, um, the minister at my church said, since you never got to do any kind of service, why don't you do one now? And, and it had been like six months, seven months afterwards. And I said, you sure that'd be okay? And he said, what does it matter when it is? Doesn't matter when it is. So just, you know, have a celebration of life. And you can, you know, because you, I didn't have anything in the paper because it was in the paper in Portland. Nobody would have known, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like we didn't live yeah. there. We didn't. So anyway, we did that. I went to the local funeral home that um, actually was affiliated with our church and he helped me set everything up and we did um then the obituaries weren't expensive like they are now but we did the obituary and everything i had people from des moines like tons of people from des moines come down that church was packed wow i found out things about him through the celebration of life that I didn't even know. And I thought I knew everything about him. We were so close, but there was all these people telling me, you know, they were, they were telling me like every time he heard one of us was sick, he made homemade soup and would deliver it to us and just sit and and talk to us, make sure we were okay. Uh, I got so many letters afterwards from people from all over the place that, that got our address. So they just shared it throughout the whole thing. And they wrote, they wrote me letters on, on how they felt about my dad and what he did for them in their lives. I have a big box of them. That's, that's amazing. That's and a beautiful so thing. so that to me, you know, I'm really glad that I ended up doing that. Um, because especially when I miss him, I can pull all those out you know, and read them. And I'm just so proud. So, okay. Let us start at the beginning. Where, where did you, or when did you start drinking? At what age? So everything for me started at 16. Like I said, every, everything was 16. That was the 
you know, the age my parents started like lifting the curfew and, you know, the age where I was starting to get more socially accepted, my popularity in the neighborhood. I was very good athletics growing up. So um, I was very well known and, you know, like I was very well liked. And so like 16 is when everything started. Things didn't become an issue where, you know, like my life revolved around it and I needed to function until dad passed away at 23. So between 16 and 23, it was, it was a lot of drinking. It was a lot of smoking weed. There was a lot of party, but it was never anything that was a consecutive thing or a daily thing. It was more of just like a weekend kind of thing. It didn't become an issue where I consider it an addiction where it, it's ruined my life um, until an, I was 23. Okay, so not an addiction, but you were still doing illegal stuff. 100%. I mean, it was always, always, it was always illegal. But yeah, when I say addiction, in my definition of addiction, is when my life was unmanageable. I couldn't sleep without it. I couldn't eat without it. I couldn't clean without it. I couldn't go to work without it. Um, where I needed it just to, quote unquote, be a functional human being. That's where I consider my addiction. It definitely started way before, you know, like it's in the genes. But my definition of where it became unmanageable is the age I consider myself when I became an addict. Okay. So are we talking about just an addict in general or an alcoholic or? Uh, We're talking uh, addict in general because alcohol is a drug, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. So when I say addict, I mean everything, of course, the board, drugs, pills, molly, cocaine, special K, shrooms, all of that, that when my life was, I, we call them garbage, you know, like a trash can or garbage pail, like I would do anything except the heroin. Right. So, um, and the heroin you didn't do, so that was kind of a, like, because my dad did it, my mom did it, and was it was it because that was painful for you to think of them doing that or because of them getting the AIDS and how much they suffered from that? I So when I was younger, I looked at both of them as junkies. So to me, a junkie was someone that did heroin. So I didn't consider myself a drug addict because I wasn't doing heroin. I was doing prescription pills. They prescribed by doctors, even though I'm over medicated. I'm not shooting them. I'm not sniffing them. I'm not smoking them. You know what I'm saying? I consider myself to be better at it because my mentality was I'm going to be able to control it. You know, like I was so, my mindset, my perspective was so out of whack that I, I looked at drug addicts as bums, people underneath the bridge, people living on the train. When in reality, that's the stigma that we believe that we created that we're trying to all stop too at the same time. So like it, it, it's, for me, I was really confused. I was really like ego ran and pride based. And that's, that was my downfall. Okay. So we were 16, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic to me because through another doctor that I interviewed, um, and then there's been a couple people, a lot of their stuff actually began in junior high, um, as far as feeling their feelings coming And, and not knowing how to deal with them. So if you think about going through puberty, um, you know, and this is when 
everything is changing and you're trying to decide who you are. And, and I, I realize that goes all the way probably through the twenties, you know, early twenties or whatever, when you're still trying to figure that out. But when you, your hormones first start changing, you're a mess. I mean, your whole body's a mess. Um, and I've interviewed a couple of people that, um, well, like one was a cutter. So he, he didn't have access yet to alcohol or drugs being in junior high. Um, but he just found out by accident, by accidentally cutting himself, that, that oh my gosh, that just, just the pain of that, that he, it was like a paper cut. Mm-hmm. And you know, th- those those hurt like hell. <laughs> yeah, those are the worst. Isn't that I... amazing? The tiny, tiny thing that hurts so much, but just a paper cut. And that took his mental pain away. And so he went, oh, gee, that's kind of interesting. Started actually cutting himself by like making tattoos. He would look in the mirror and but was very very careful he drew them out no he's he's strategic with it yeah yeah um and that held that pain emotional pain at a bay until he got into high school and then of course he had there was the opening to there was people that could get the alcohol and people that mm-hmm. could get the drugs. And so the cutting went away. So I was just wondering, so in junior high, did you have any kind of feelings of. So when it, when it comes to puberty, I believe I was a late bloomer. Like yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't recall even reaching puberty in junior high school. I think I reached more puberty in my freshman year of high school. Um, and that's you know, me was, too. You know, so I think I was, because my birthday's in January. So I was like almost 13, 14, I want to say, or something like that. When it, when like the, it, things started to change for me as far as body wise and right, feelings right. like that. Um, in junior high school, if I'm looking back, I mean, I always had the run things into the ground type of uh, uh, addictive behavior. I get a new video game. I play that video game. 24 hours a day over and over. a month and then get bored of it and then just leave it alone so it was like that even with clothes a pair of sneakers i get a new pair of sneakers and i'm wearing them sneakers every day all day you know like or if i wanted something i had to get it in the moment and if i didn't get in the moment i was a mess you know and then when i got in the moment i got bored of it real quick so if i'm looking back to junior high school that's the only thing that i could think of um, I necessarily like I'm working with a therapist, you know, here and there. Um, I think I have such a, a mental block on a lot of things that happened to me during my childhood that need to be unraveled that I haven't been able to unravel yet. Yeah. And when I'm asked certain questions, I don't e- I can't even look back and give you an example of things. And that there, there's definitely experiences and incidents that occurred in my childhood, but I can't look back and find any of them. So sometimes dad will give me like anxiety like am I making something bigger out out of something that's not there or did something so horrible happen that my brain is protecting me from going back and reliving those moments you know one thing that I was told by one of the um doctors scientists actually that um I interviewed and it was it was very interesting and I think I'm going to put it on my Instagram story uh the the quote um 
was if a child is, if you do not give a child, I got to think how this was said. It starts with an N. You know, I, now, now nutrition is coming to my head and it's not that. When you're, when you're giving them all your- Nurture? Nurturing. If, if, okay. they're, if you're not nurturing your child, it's child abuse. Mm. I like that. I, I really like I, that. I agree. My therapist also told me the adult that you become is the adult that you wanted to be around as a child. Mm-hmm. That's and, another good one. 100% true because the adult that I'm in, and remember, our adult is not our age, the adult is our experiences, our responsibilities, Absolutely. and how we carry ourselves, right? So, like where I am today, this version of myself, this adult that I've become today, 100% is the father that I needed in my life. And that, I think that's why I'm so adamant about becoming a father. Like that's one of my main goals is to become a father and to be able to have a child and be able to live long enough to see my grandchildren, you know, and, and things like that. So like, it, it's, I just won't push the envelope though. Like uh, I did get to witness true love through my parents. I've never seen my parents fight. Like they probably fought, they never did it in front of us. I always seen them hugging. I always seen them kissing. I always seen them, you know, doing things for each other. Um, but it, but were they doing I, things with you? Not necessarily. No, you know what? It, my my father started getting more involved with my younger brother because it was uh, he was starting to deteriorate. So my younger brother got a lot more from both my mother and father. My older brother and sister were from a different father, but my father raised them. I think my older brother was like three and my sister was one. They called my father dad and stuff like that. And in the beginning, he did a lot of stuff with them because he was still like on the drugs and the drugs gave us crazy energy. You know what I'm saying? And when we're on the drugs, we loved everything. When it, when it got to me, um, they were already kind of deteriorating. Mom was always sleeping on the couch. Dad was always sleeping in the bedroom. Um, anything success that came with sports, uh, never at my games, um, never, I don't recall having these conversations that a father should have with his son, you know, the bird and bees type of conversations. Um, my mother and I's relationship grew stronger when my father passed away though, because when he passed away, I'm the splitting image of my father. When I say from eyes to hands, to mannerisms, to the way I speak. So like her and I got closer because I think she felt closer to my father, which allowed her to enable me more than she should have because she wanted me closer to her. And I understood that. So I manipulated her love for my father by helping her support my habit, you know? So like I lived with my mother. I wasn't self-sufficient. So we grew closer, you know, like I love both of them, you know, like they're my parents, you only get one set. Um, But I did, I... They, God removing my mother out of my life is a blessing because she enabled me. She was my plan. I wouldn't be living the life I'm living. I wouldn't be in California if she was still alive. I would have never wanted to leave her side because I didn't want her to suffer alone. So like, that's why I don't question God's wisdom and he, everything he does has a purpose and a reason for it. Okay. So, um, you, you mentioned then you, you have a younger brother. How, how much younger? 
Uh, Vincent, if I'm 38, Vincent got to be about 33. And, and he's biologically with your yes. mom and dad. So you're biological. Yes. Brother. The other two are half. We all so, have the same mother. Right. So d- does he have any kind of? No. Nothing. Nothing. He was also given a, like a, a ton of love though. You know, like, and then he had an older brother like myself. He also had to, he also watched what you were doing. Yes. He had an older brother like myself to show him everything not to do. Not to and do. <laughs> probably, and then probably heard the conversations in the house when I was locked up in jail or in rehab for the sum up millionth time. And, you know, like, so that, you know, like, kind of like how my dad took the hit with the heroin, and that's why I never did it. I kind of took all the hits for Vincent, and that's why Vincent's very successful. Vincent's doing very well. He graduated college. You know, like, he lives, him and I, relationship, though, it is tainted. Uh, I try to reach out to him. He doesn't speak to me, which is fine. That's just what it is today. Uh, I pray on it. God will open that door when he wants it open, and I, I'll just keep knocking on it until it opens up, though. I won't give up on it. Good, good, don't. Um, Okay, so what I want to go into then is what do you think was the absolute worst thing that you did while you were going through all of your different drugs? And what what was, was there a most potent drug that actually worked better than all the rest of them? No, the, the, there was never a more potent drug. As if it was a drug, it was good enough for me. You know, like okay. that. Um, I think the worst thing I did was um, take a son away from a child, uh, take a son away from my mother and father, taking a brother away from Vincent, taking a brother away from my older brother. And I removed who I could have been for people out of their lives because I made the drug more important than anything else. You know, just being selfish and self-centered um i think that is the worst thing that i did because the way i'm living now being selfless and being of service to people and seeing how much that's helping people's lives and you know get helping people move along on their journey i realized how much i took away from this world by me thinking i was only hurting myself by doing the drugs not realizing you know like an immovable object it's an unstoppable force there's damage of a collateral nature so like i was the immovable object my my addiction was that unstoppable force and by us colliding the the damage was everything that was going on around me so like for me that's where i think uh i can't as far as picking a specific thing I've done, I've done a lot of horrible things to people. Like I've never killed anyone or anything like that, but I robbed, I stole, you know what I'm saying? I was the type of addict that would steal your money and then help you look for it. You know, like, and the money was in my pocket. You know, like so we lied. We did a lot of lying. Oh, too. a lot of manipulation. I'm not a lot of lying. Um, I had to manipulate. I had to make you think I was something I wasn't because I hated myself. So the ego was the ego was created through the drugs because as long as you thought something about me that wasn't true, but it was I thought it would give me value with you, I was okay with it. And then the pride would come in and be like, all right, don't worry about it. You can get off the drugs whenever you want. This is just a today type of thing. So like, um, but yeah, the manipulation, the lies, the dishonesty, the lust, the greed, the robbing, the stealing, you know, like across the board, you know, and for years. 
but I think the the worst thing I did was remove myself from a world that, you know what I'm saying, we all need each other in order to be able to go where we want to go in life. So um, I think we might have briefly touched on this before the interview. Was it when you finally decided to get clean for good, that's when your mother passed away? So, yeah, so when um, my mother passed away on Thanksgiving of last year, right? So six months prior to that, I went back into treatment. I made the decision to leave her alone, knowing she was going to deteriorate at a quicker weight. She was already dying. She was waking up, throwing up bile. She didn't want to go to the hospital. So I made the decision of leaving her to go back into treatment. And in order to have something you never have, you have to do things you've never done. So this time in treatment, I did everything I've never done. I got a therapist. I started going to NA meetings. You know what I'm saying? I got a sponsor. I started journaling. I didn't care about what was going on around me. I wasn't there to make friends. I did everything that I'd never done before because I had to get clean before she passed away. Like that was my mentality. I got drug free off of methadone. I was on methadone for about 12, 13 years as high as 140 milligrams. I got off of it three weeks before she passed away. So she got to see me drug free and I got to, you know, like we spoke about, I got to know that she knew I was a different person because I was on the phone with her doctor. And when I was speaking to her doctor and I hung up the phone, because she's always said, you sound good, you're doing good, and, but moms know us better than anyone. She said, you sound different. So and she knew. She, said, she knew. She, when she said she said, I get goosebumps every time I say, um, she, when she said, you sound different, like I didn't even say nothing. I sat in the moment and it was like this unconditional love that mothers only mothers could give us it was like this warm blanket over me that reassured me that you're on the path just stay on the path take your time she knew it and that that was the first time I set out to do something and accomplish what I did and didn't quit before the end of it because I was great at starting things never good at finishing them so that was the first thing and then I promised her I'd finish treatment you know I finished treatment while living in treatment, I built a global brand, a nonprofit, fully incorporated, clothing line, you know, went on tours, speaking in different states, getting paid, launching app, which you see behind me, the sober app. And, you know, like there's just so much. I had articles written on me because from what I did inside treatment is, isn't really known to be done. You know, people go to treatment and, you know, we waste a lot of time in treatment. My CEO of that treatment facility, which they have plenty of buildings, is now my mentor. She helped me write the bylaws for my nonprofit. So, like, I'm just... She what? She helped me write the bylaws for my nonprofit. She's my mentor. Yeah, she's she's my mentor. So, like, uh, you know, like, letters of recommendation and now, now I'm certified as a registered alcohol and drug technician out here in California, running group therapy keynotes, speaking at the Honda Center a few weeks ago, speaking now, is at that meetings. you already got that license through or is it still? Well, pocket? it's a certification. So like first you get the certification and then you have to continue the education while you're working with a treatment facility because you got to get a certain amount of hours with a right. credited facility. Right. But I, I'm almost finished with my bachelor's in the psychology with a concentration in addiction. So like once I get that, I don't have to do as many hours with a credit facility because I already have the education in the field. But right now I'm just considered certified. So what I can do is go into treatment facilities and do group therapy and get paid by the hour for the group. 
I don't have a caseload. I could work for a treatment facility, but where I am in my life and for what I want to do in my vision, I don't want to be tied down to one treatment facility with a caseload. I want to be able to maneuver around, you know what I'm saying, and be able to go speak in anywhere and everywhere. There's addicts and we're all over the world. That's why I think my social media is doing so well because I'm able to connect with so many people all over the world. So I'm confused. Um, you actually, don't you actually work for somebody? I technically don't work for, I, I work my job, I work at like a, an Al-Anon club, like a social club out here in California. But that's just where they hold groups. I don't really work for some. I'm, I'm self-employed. You know, like I, everything that I'm doing is, is for like I'm getting hired to do the speaking, the keynote speaking, and things of that nature. I don't work for a treatment facility. I'm just certified so they could hire me to come in to speak to their clients. Well, so like when we, you know, we were gonna plan the other day and things got off. You, you were going to do it, you said, over your lunch hour. So yeah, I, work at, I work at a social club that holds AA and NA meetings and ACA meetings. It's a social club. So, so like you're required they, to be there for eight hours? or? Yes, yes. I, have, I worked at maybe just a couple of days out of the week. More for being staying plugged into the program of AA and NA because that's very important for my sobriety. Mm -hmm. Um, as well as make connections and network and, you know, introduce people to the app and introduce people to who I am. So I get more speaking gigs because I work there because they, they get to meet me. I get to tell them who I am and like, all right, well, can you come speak at this facility? Can you go do this there? So like, it, it's more the pay ain't something you can live on. That's 100%. But, so, but they're also very lenient with, you know, if you have a speaking engagement, then yes. there's no problem yes. leaving. And, okay. Yeah. What, what pays my salary is the membership fees that people pay to be in the social club. So, like, they, they, their, their income base is on memberships. You know, like, so like it's $10 a month per member. So every member, every person that's there is paying $10 a month. That money gets put into like an escrow fund, whatever, that pays the salary for two people because they only hire two people. It's, you know, like it's a seven day week. One works four days, one works three. Okay. So you, you feel really good now. And how long has it been since you've been sober? So June 12th made a year. Benny, um, it will be a year, or it was well, in June. It was June a year. Yeah, because um, today's the 19th. Because methadone is considered uh, maintenance and, you know, like Suboxone and things of that nature, I technically start counting November 3rd when I got off the methadone because that was such a huge uh, milestone for me because methadone, you know, we call it liquid handcuffs. It, it's synthetic heroin. It gets, it doesn't, get out of your body, out of your bones until five years after your last use. Like there's a lot of complications that occur. It's not like heroin where it's four or five days. And then, you know what I'm saying? So for me, I okay, start wait, counting. wait, wait, wait. Let's explain to the audience what methadone okay. is and what it's used for. Okay, so methadone is the synthetic form of heroin. So it, like what they do is like if you're on heroin or if you're on opiates, if you want to get off it, you're going to go through some physical withdrawal because the body becomes physically dependent on the drug. You know, so like, you know, your, your dopamine stop creating. And once the dopamine stop creating, then, you know what I'm saying, you're going to go through some kind of significant physical 
withdrawal. So the government created something back in the 80s when, you know, this really, the heroin, the crack epidemic came out, that you could go to a clinic daily and get your dose. The only thing is what they didn't tell us is how more addictive it is than actually heroin. But what happens is, you know, our government isn't the... Well, wait a minute. Is it only used to get off of heroin? Yes. I mean, very few hospitals, when I say very... It could be used for pain management, but it, it, I've never came across a doctor or came across a person. Every person that gets methadone, it's to get them off of the heroin or the fentanyl or the opiates. I'm interviewing somebody in a couple of weeks that is um, a recovering alcoholic that is going through some, a lot of um, arthritic pain. Okay. And that person... Um, has told me that they are currently on methadone for that. Are, are they, are they, did they, they disclose to, that maybe they did I'm, more than just the alcohol? I'm sorry, what? Did they disclose that maybe they, maybe alcohol was their drug of choice, but maybe they were also on another drug that they need the methanol? Um, they did tell them that alcohol was their, yeah. Okay. Um, and I was surprised that with them just having that addiction, that they would subscribe that. But the person told me that they like have to go to the place to pick it up. So if they're going to a clinic, that's like me. So like maybe I'm not saying anyone's a liar. I'm not their story. Yeah. From my from my experience, if they're going to a clinic every day for the methanol, they did more than just alcohol. Alcohol might have just been. Well, and I haven't, and I haven't done the whole. I haven't done the interview okay. yet, so I because don't know. It, I just know it, that the person identifies as an alcoholic. Okay, because if right if, it, if it was for pain, they would be getting the pill form, just like you get Vicodin, and just like you get Percocet, and just like you get things like that. If it was for pain, they would let them take it home. If the person actually has to go to a clinic, what that means is they're on the methadone to absence program. So they have to go there daily. They have to give urines. They got to see a counselor. So if they're going to an actual clinic for it, there might be more issues that. So what I was told, and like I said, I don't, you know, I don't know either, was um, this person only has to do this for three months and does have to be checked to make sure that there's nothing else being mixed with it and so on and so forth. But after that, then they will get a prescription. Oh, okay. So maybe, I mean, maybe some states are different. Uh, That's what I was thinking. Like maybe some states have different laws. Because the methadone is highly addictive. Like it's way more addictive. Like my teeth right now did not always look like this. Like it costs a lot of money to get my teeth. My, my whole mouth was rotten. I didn't smile for two, three was that years. From, what was that from? Though? Wasn't that from cocaine? No, it's from the methadone. I brush my teeth two, three times a day, even in active using. The methadone just deteriorates everything, your bones. What happens after a while, if you're on methadone 20, 25 years, you'll know who's on it because they walk like the hunchback of Notre Dame. Your bones start to conform. Like it, oh, it's it, terrible. It, it eats away at the calcium. It eats away at the potassium. It takes five years for methadone to get out of your bones after your wow. last use. So November 3rd of last year was the last time. I, it won't be fully out of my bones until five years from now. 
You know, See, that I, sounds to me like they shouldn't even have it on the market. No, but it, what, what, this is where I get with our government, right? They're not the most trustworthy. We're paychecks at the end of the day. They know once you get on, your medical insurance is paying for this. Mo, mo, nine out of 10 people are not paying out of pocket for methanol. But Medicaid, and out here it's called Medi-Cal, whatever it is across the country, Medicaid pays for you to go get. And what happens is when you give a dirty urine, they don't remove it from you. What they do is they up your dose. They're saying that the dose isn't holding you over because you still feel the need to get high. When in reality, I did a lot of research on this. The body only needs 30 milligrams to hold them over for two days after your last use of heroin. They pushed me up to 140 milligrams because I kept giving dirty urines. You know what I'm saying? Without asking me. And then when you want to come down, the process to come down or wean off is five milligrams every two weeks, but you have to give a month of clean urine. But then when you go see the doctor, they make you sit there for two hours. So what person, what addict is going to be like, you know what? No, nah, I'm, I'm not doing this. Like they, they had, it's a, it's a money-making scheme at the end of the day. And, and that's what it sounds like. And that's what I'm saying is so like, if, you know, this person and I'll find out when I actually interview, but if, if you're an alcoholic, but you got physical pain, that kind of drug they're giving you that's so addicting um, and so bad for you just sounds like a scheme too. 100%. And there's so many natural painkillers there's so many things that you could do for pain that I've learned, you know, through this, you know, through this process, because I'm all, I can't do just one, you know, it's just not in my, my mentality. So I found different, you know, like ways to deal with pain and things like that. And it's just that the, the methadone and the, the suboxone is a little bit better in the sense where it doesn't. I don't know what that is. Subo you Do you know, or you don't I know? don't. So Suboxone, you, you ever hear of Naltrexone? You know, Narcan, you know, yes. where they bring people I've back. Heard of it. Okay. So Suboxone has that ingredient in it. So what Suboxone is used for is when you're going through the withdrawal, you take the Suboxone, it gets rid of the withdrawal. But if of you a take certain Suboxone, kind of withdrawal? Like uh, physical withdrawal from, from heroin, fentanyl, opiates, whatever. Because remember, cocaine is a mood thing. It's not a physical dependence. Anything that you would get a physical withdrawal where your dopamines aren't creating enough for you to actually process anything. So, but the Suboxone, you can't take it unless you're already going through the withdrawal, right? If you take it while you have the drugs in your body, it brings the withdrawal out of you and you get more sick. But the Suboxone, it doesn't deteriorate you like the methadone does. You can't tell someone's on Suboxone. You can tell who's on methadone though. You know what I'm saying? I know a lot Why of people- what, what, the, what's the, the methanol makes you look like a skeleton. Like I could send you pictures of how I look like when I was on methanol. You mean you lose your, weight? You lose weight, but you don't lose weight in your gut. Reason being is because the methanol makes you crave sugar. And the sugar intake goes straight to your stomach. That's why you'll see a lot of heroin addicts with skinny arms but big stomachs because sugar goes straight to the gut. We love sugar when we're on heroin or opiates or methanol. So, and it, the, the Suboxone doesn't make your, your eye, your pupils get pinned out. The methanol and the heroin and the opiates make your pupils get pinned out. It, it, it shrinks your face.
boxing where you kind of look like a skeleton. The suboxing don't do that. Um, the suboxing, you really, you they have to test your urine specifically for the naltrexone. You know what I'm saying? And with methadone, it comes up as opiate. So like they could just give you a regular drug test and you'll come up positive. So methadone but, is considered an opiate too? Yeah, it has it has it in there. It's, a, it's like, a, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me, Hitler came up with it. When he, um, when the Germans were fighting the Russians in Russia, so he oh. would give this, he would give it to the soldiers because you don't, you don't get sick. For the fourteen years I was on it, I did I not get sick one time. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get sick. I think it's methamphetamine. I think but, I, you know. Wait a minute, I want to look it up and see. So yeah, check it out. What? So what's it? It's called methadone. Yeah, M A T H A D O N E. And with Hitler. Wait, wait, wait. He, Slow down. Go ahead. M-A-T-H-A-D-O-N-E. Okay, so, but we, I wanted to, to find out about... I guess you could just Google who created methadone, who developed methadone. I know, I know the Germans created methamphetamine. and who then created I mean, methadone? And then after the Germans created methamphetamine, it was brought to the United States and they created it into methanol. Huh. So this says methadone, the first pharmaceutical treatment for heroin addiction was pioneered 50 years ago by Rockefeller's University, Mary Jean Creek. Okay. So I they... Yeah, so the Germans created methamphetamine, and then the United States, you know what I'm saying, after we took their scientists, probably, they were out here, we created methanol. I know, I know, I know the Germans created methamphetamine because I remember reading about it. That's what they gave their soldiers in the trenches in Russia because they were dying of, you know, like being freezing, and you don't eat on it. You really don't need to eat. You don't get sick. You know, like it, it it's, pro I consider it the worst drug in the United States. I know fentanyl is killing people. Um, but I, the methadone is slowly killing people, you know? Okay. So it says it's origin or, or yeah. is that how you say it? Origin, origin, same difference. You stick uh, German scientist, German scientists synthesized okay. methadone during world war two because of a shortage of morphine. There you go. So it was introduced into the United States in 1947 as uh, Dolophine. Yeah. So, yeah. So when we stole all their scientists after World War II, you know, uh, that's what probably happened. And, and then it, it sounds uh, like, so like, like, um, yeah, so it, it's, it's in the, um, like what cocaine does and everything psychological it's it says that it's um it leads to abuse um to psychological depression and you can't just stop it cold turkey like heroin you could stop cold turkey you'll go through physical withdrawal in three days to four day you're feeling better the physical withdrawal after methadone is 16 days 
You know what I'm saying? Like that's how it, that's how deep it gets into your body. Heroin after three days, you're gonna start feeling better. You might throw up a little bit. The methadone, like I tried doing it cold turkey and I almost died. Like that and the benzos, the Xanax, those are the two in alcohol. Like benzos that kill you, you know, like you, you'll go through seizures. Alcohol will kill you, you'll go through seizures if you try to do these things cold turkey, if you've been on it for such amount of time. The methadone is like, you, you don't know, you're, you're releasing bowels from, every, every, from the front and the back. You know what I'm saying? You're, the, you, you, you don't know where to sit. You don't know what, where, how to use the toilet. You're hot and cold sweats. You're called up in a ball in like a fetus position. It, it, it's, you can't do a cold turkey. The government knows what they're doing when it comes to things like this. They have us handcuffed. That's why they're called liquid handcuffs on the street. Okay, so... Um... The effect on the body when an individual uses methadone, he or she may experience physical symptoms. Why don't you tell me some of yours and I'll see if it matches this. Physical symptoms as far as when I would take it, what I would uh -huh. feel afterwards. Oh, it's a straight euphoria. I would have unlimited amount of energy, um, itching, scratching, um, red nose, uh, anxious, not able to sit in one place very sleepy then after a while become very lazy towards the end of the day i used to be able to sleep 16 hours a day on it you know like it, it's just there was a there's a lot that goes with it you could sleep on it oh, at towards after you're on it for a while yeah okay. like after your body gets accustomed to it i like to compare the things now this is on this this information i'm giving is off of um dea.gov okay so I consider that a good source. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that, that mayo. So um, w by the way, everybody, we, we are not pretending like we know all this stuff. We, you know, that's why I like to look it up. Um, he's also more knowledgeable as far as what some of these things are, but I'm, I'm checking on him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this says... Um, you, you may experience physical symptoms like sweating, itchy skin, sleepiness. Um, individuals who abuse it risk becoming tolerant of and physically dependent on the drug. When use is stopped, individuals may experience withdrawal symptoms, including anxiety, muscle tremors, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, and abdominal cramps. Yeah. I'm interested in two, two other things. Um, so people do overdose on it. Oh, really? Uh-huh. And it says the effects of methadone overdoses are slow and shallow breathing, blue fingernails and lips. Wow. I've never um, experienced Stomach spasms, clammy skin, convulsions, weak pulse, and then into coma and then death. Really? See, that's new to me. I mean, I've been on it for a long time. I know a lot of people. I've helped a lot of people get off of it. Um, never have I came across a story of someone overdosing on it, though. And I know people that have been on 300 milligrams, because if you have HIV or AIDS, you have to go on at least 200 milligrams, because the our body eats it away quicker if you have HIV or AIDS than someone that doesn't. 
So like I've known people that have on 300 milligrams and still doing heroin and still smoking crack and still didn't even overdose. So that's, that's news to me. Yeah. And then it says, um, although chemically unlike morphine or heroin, methadone produces many of the same effects. 100%. Yeah. And then the last thing is, this is what is the legal status in the United States? And it says methadone is scheduled to drug under the Controlled Substance Act, which it may legally be used under a doctor's supervision. It's non-medical use is illegal. Yeah, so you could, you could get jobs on. I know counselors that work in treatment facilities that are on methadone. I know counselors that are on Suboxone. You just can't operate machinery because of all the symptoms that you just expressed, you know, the sleepiness, the anxiety. They don't want you operating any kind of machinery or driving. But you could be a counselor in a treatment facility working with clients that, and you're on methadone. You know, like it, it, it's, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying the government has their way of wanting to do things. And it, it sometimes, excuse the language, is ass backwards in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, it is an opiate um, that yep. is associated with an aphoric, aphoric. Is that how you say that? Aphoric. Euphoric. 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 Yeah. High. Yeah. No, you get high off it, and you can't. You can't see that. Just really amazes high. me that we're using one drug to get you off of another drug to get you. Like off taken of from Peter to pay Paul. You know, like it, it's where paychecks and when it when medical insurance is being paid for it, that's being ta- paid from taxpaying dollars. They don't care. It's just money that keeps generating their pockets so they can have the nice houses and the boats. And we're over here struggling to pay seven dollars a gallon for gas. OK, this is this is like mind blowing to me. So what what can we say? First of all, to parents, because it starts with parents watching their children, um, teenagers, whatever, whatever you want to say, even adult children, um, to look for, to watch for, so that we can step in and maybe, I, I know that nobody's going to stop until they're ready, but mm-hmm. there's there's still a thing called intervention. Yes, which I do for some people. Okay. So now whether or not it works or not all the time, you know, that's up to the individual. But we, we still have that thing, intervention. Mm-hmm. But what are the signs, do you think, that um, parents should be looking for? Okay. And also what they should be doing to stop it from even escalating to the harder drugs. So my, my first, if you're, if your son or daughter is an extrovert and they start becoming an introvert, focus on why that's changing and vice versa. If they're an introvert and now they're starting to become an extrovert, uh, there'll be a change in their personality that won't be doubted. It'll be something that's so eye-blowing that you'll understand. Or they just really start isolating a lot and, you know, like they're, they're always down. 
they're not if we don't really clean our rooms as kids anyway but like if the, the cleaning stops the showering stops the not wanting to go out and hang out starts you know like a lot of it's always going to be something that's a, a personality trait always the first one to start changing when the drugs start happening whether it goes from bad to good you know what i'm saying like really right. the introvert to extrovert and the extrovert to introvert that right there is key component plus you got to watch who they're hanging out with and how defensive are they getting of kids that you know aren't doing the right thing? If they're getting real defensive while you're talking about my friends, odds are me being a child, I would stick up for my friends. I would do them bad because I was doing bad stuff with them and I felt the need to have to help them. You know, Absolutely. like just being just being a child of something, you know, like and being there and remembering. Um, as far as what you could do, the brain isn't meant to register a negative response what i mean is if i tell you don't think about cars right now you're probably thinking about cars so what I, what i wouldn't do is i wouldn't tell the kids not to do drugs because whenever i tell myself not to do drugs i think about doing it and if you're your child you're very rebellious i know i was for the most part like so i would more i would i would i would want to maybe learn more about whatever it is that become more of a don't push the envelope. Become more of a friend, more understanding, and don't be an oh, authority stop. figure. Stop. We cannot be their friends. Not their friend, more friendly. That maybe okay. let me let me rephrase it. Become more friendly where you're not telling them what not to do. Because if they're doing drugs, they're already starting to feel a certain way about themselves and the shame is starting to come in. And by telling them not to do something, I, I needed. Is, I'll put it on me. I needed my parents to be present and they weren't present. You know what I'm saying? And and that's Amen. what led it. Amen. Yeah. So be present. Remember, we're responsible for the effort, not the outcome of things. I would really go for professional though. Like I wouldn't really want to go to that. When I do an intervention, I don't even speak about drugs. Whenever well, I'm no, I'm not, I wasn't necessarily talking about that. That would be later on in the stage, but I'm talking about the early signs okay. um, that, that we can, you know, stop early, you know, um, or get them help early. Yeah. So, so that it doesn't lead on to the heavier drugs and the being arrested and the, the stealing and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I personally, that's just me, um, think you really need to know for sure who your kids are hanging out with. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think if you're paying for a cell phone for them, that you have every right to look in that cell phone anytime you want mm. and see what's going on in there. Um, if they you know, are going places, I think you should know, you know, what's going on at this place. Is it safe? What kind of people are going to be there? That's, that's just me. Um, recently, I, I had a situation of my own where I found an illegal um, driver's license. And that, you know, obviously was to use because he was underage and uh, I took, obviously I took it away, Yeah. but that doesn't, I mean, they can get it offline real easy. And I, I think parents need to look for that kind of stuff. And 
I asked him why, why? And he said, maybe just to feel like I have more freedom. I, my answer to that was really because if you get caught with this, you're going to find out what it's like not to have freedom. Yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> so, but, you know, it, it's those kind of things. And, it, you know, they're not going to like you. But they're, they're not, they don't have to like you. What does God say? You're a Christian. What do we got to do? You got to love them. Yeah. And what is love? Being patient and being kind. You know, sometimes being kind doesn't necessarily, like you said, being their friend. Being kind is actually doing what's the right thing for them, regardless of what they might. They might not listen to what you say, right? Listen is to putting the action and things you hear, but they will hear what you're saying and then put it into action when they get older. Because now that I'm older and I look back, my parents were my kind of like my friends in a sense. was like, all right, go do what you got to do. And look where it got me. You know what I'm they, saying? They kind of enabled you, didn't they? Not kind of. They did. They 100%. Did. There, is, there is no kind of. Do you no think kinda. they knew that, that? They probably didn't know that they were enabling you. And I think that's one of the messages we want to get across to. No, I think they felt so much shame for where they were in life and my father with the HIV and the AIDS and you know what I'm saying they you know like my father's upbringing wasn't that great you know my grandma I gotta tell my grandfather died when he was very young he was raised by my grandmother who which had a heavy hand because that's how the old school Italians were back then you know so and my mother grew up in a home with an alcoholic mother and her father didn't stick up for her and my mother was beat you know every time the house was dirty she got beat you know that's why my mother was a clean freak you know like so like I don't blame nobody for anything in my life because there comes a point in our lives where whatever happened in our childhood yes it's significant but there comes a point where we have to try to find a way to overcome it to be able to live a better life today like yeah I can't allow that to be a hindrance on me no more like I'm here where I am today like I gotta make the best of it so like I don't they enabled me I think more out of the sense because they, they, of how they felt about themselves, not so I could go off and become, you know, a maniac in a menace to society. Um, you know, sometimes I think, uh, I've done so much studies on these things and there's, a, you know, addiction genes and then there's those who become addicted. You know what I'm saying? So you, you can be born with the addiction Gene, period. I I agree with that. Um, I want one hundred percent. I was. Yeah. Um, and then there's those who don't have the gene, but maybe something traumatic in their life happened, and they started using something to cover that pain, and it turned into an addiction. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference. There's a difference there because when you're born with a with an addiction gene. It can be any kind of addiction. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be drugs or alcohol. Yeah. You know, it, it can be so many, so many things. There's many forms of dependency. And more than one. Eating disorders, know? sex addicts, internet addiction, gambling. You know, there's so right. many forms All of, of it. All of yeah. it. And, and it, you know, and you can be going through more than one of them at a time. Well, so, we could substitute, too. 
Like sure. I can stop doing the drugs and I can start shopping. When you don't address the illness known as addiction properly, it's just removing the thing out of your dependent on it. it doesn't, it's not going to change your life. You got to get to the root. You got to really get deep down inside and start working on yourself. You know, you just gave me a really good idea. I need to find somebody to interview who has a shopping addiction. I could probably find you one. I speak to addicts of all different types all over the world. I'll start, I, I that's, might even that's have one. somebody. That's okay. one that's, that I know people would like to hear about. They don't think about it anymore. And, and I think it's an important thing. Also, yeah. um, hoarders. I've heard that hoarders also, um, that's a mental disorder. Yeah. Um, and I think the all attachment. these things. They get, attached to, they get attached to things and they can't let go of it. So they just keep everything. But see, you know, it's like still hard. a mental disorder. So yeah. something in their life caused them yeah. to want to keep everything. Mm-hmm. Probably some, some kind of abandonment, I would, yeah. I would think. I, I, that would be my first guess to abandonment or, you know, like uh, just not having anything. And not right. wanting to get anything up, yeah. you know, one, one way or another. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about the sober. So, all right. So, um, so I am CEO and founder of Inspire to Inspire. Basically, Inspire and Inspire is just a nonprofit that helps addicts all over the world find treatment facilities, get medical insurance if it's possible, or just give them a place where free of judgment where they could just share their stories and be okay. Cause the only way I knew how to recover at this was, was getting honest and you have to get real honest with what's going on inside of you in order to be able to start being able to win against it. So inspired and inspired is the nonprofit. The sober, which you see behind me is an app. The sober app, what it does, it brings the amenities of recovery into one app. So we have PDF books, we have audio books, we have podcasts, we have life coaches, we got recovery coaches, which are certified. We got motivational speakers, we got community, we got tracking. We this is all. what you all find in the app? That you find all of this in the app. We have virtual events where we'll do vision boards, where we have exercise trainers. We're starting to work with superfood companies where they're going to start showing us how to cleanse our body properly and eat healthier and get the brain to work better. Um, and what we did was get people with established platforms. So every one of our collaborators are established on social media, wherever it is in this world. You could even take their life coaches and recovery coach classes because they're certified and they could teach you it. So like we brought it all in one place because when we're first in recovery, we have to search for these things individually. And when you first get in recovery, you're really not motivated to do a lot. So we brought it all in one place, one for the addict that can't tell anyone they're an addict because they might live in a family that season in black and white we also do it for the addict that might live in a small town in scotland and they can't make a meeting or something so we're bringing the recovery to people or someone that can't go to detox because they can't leave their job because they have children they have to go to work so we do have medical people on there we do have people that can walk you through some of the things you need to walk through so we brought it all to one place so it's kind of like consolidated, right? We brought it all in one place. There is a membership fee, but we are working with treatment facilities to try to get, you know, like a discount for there. Um, but it, it's something that's bringing all the. Can you tell me the cost of it? Yeah, it's six ninety nine a month at the present moment. That's not bad. And so, can they actually chat with somebody on there? 
Yes, yes, you could chat. There, there. You could reach out. Or every one of the collaborators, their social media platforms are there. You could reach out to them. You know, what I'm saying anyone that's on the app is willing to help. Uh, without you know, what I'm saying without really getting anything in return. Why the, the why the membership fee is needed is because we're still in such an early phase of development that in order for us to be able to build a better app, we got to get some kind of funding. And until we get some kind of investors and sponsors to fund, this is what's funding the app. The collaborators aren't getting paid. They don't oh, want to get yeah, paid. Yeah, but when it. you're telling me all this stuff that's on there, $6.99 a month is nothing. No, and right now we're giving like trials. Right now we're giving discounts. Um, you know, we're trying to get into treatment facilities for it because treatment facilities are undermanned because of COVID. People aren't going back to work. So like we're trying to get it where whatever kind of funds or stipend money they have, they can purchase the app and whoever's there as clients can use the app freely. So it's just another form of recovery because we do recover out loud. That's our thing. You know, we don't recover in silence. We don't do it anonymously, even though we attend the meetings. I don't see recovering anonymously needed in the world that we're living in today with the social media the way it is, because it's still, it's starting to get socially accepted that, you know what I'm saying? The, the struggle of addiction gets admired once you overcome it. So people are starting to see that, you know what I'm saying? Like it's a mental illness and it needs to be addressed on a bigger level, not anonymously no more. Because the addict that's picking up for the first time, that thinks they found their escape, how do they know what they're going to go through or they can get better if they're not attending NA or AA? So we recover out loud to let them know, listen, we've been where you at. We felt that magical feeling. Our lives got horrible. We lived in the darkness, but we got into the light. As well as the addict family member that might give up hope that their family member ain't going to be one of the ones to make it. Just know I was looked at like that. My partners will look like that. The collaborator, every Anyone that's a collaborator has addiction in their story and overcame it, you know, unless it's a doctor or something like that. But like it, it there's everything that you need is right there on the app. So we'll walk with you, we'll crawl with you, we'll cry with you, we'll laugh with you, we'll do whatever it is that you need to actually, help you get to where you go. But you can actually speak to somebody. Yes. Yes. 100%. Or not not just a chat bot. Not, no, no, we don't do the chat box. I'm not with that. I'm authentic. I'm genuine. I'm not doing all, we don't do automated messages. You're going to get message back from a real live person that you're reaching out to 100%. And, and what if somebody asks for, if, if they can have a phone call? That, uh, I mean, if they want a phone call, then they'll get a phone call. Like if so that's, that's available want, to them? 100%. If you reach out to anyone, especially myself, like if you reach out, you want a phone call, all right, what's your number? I'm calling you right now. Okay. So th- like you individually, are you on like 24-hour call all the time? I'm I'm pretty much always on call, not even just through the app, just through social media. I speak to people and so many people in different time zones that I don't sleep anyway. I just it's just not something that I do. Um, but I'm always on the phone. I'm always texting. My my partner's always on the phone, always texting. We have people that, you know what I'm saying, that are working with us that we can refer to people. Like I wouldn't really speak to a woman. A woman reaches out to me, I'm pushing her along the women that are on my team. Listen, I got a woman, reach out to her, see what's going on. Because I personally won't do the woman thing only because they, 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 it gets messy. You know, it, I was going to ask you, do you do you feel like women would be more comfortable talking to a woman and like men are more comfortable talking to a man? Or is it more of a a woman could get attached to one of the male 
counselors and that could cause a problem. I, I think it's all of the above. All of you it. know, I think it's all, it's all your mentality, where you are, why you really want to get clean, where, you know what I'm saying? How did you hit your rock bottom yet? Uh, or you're looking to pick up somebody, you know, because you got to understand like, uh, some men don't have it in them to break the ice to a woman to start speaking to them. But if we both have addiction, now we have a certain commonality that I could just open up and be like, well, I'm an addict, you're an addict. And that could start the conversation. And then there's predators, men and women. There's women predators and there's men predators. So you're always going to have people that are different, you know, and you're going to have So what about that me that I haven't, I'm, I'm not an addict. I haven't went through the addiction, but I've, lived watching it and live, living it okay. with my family members um am, am i not somebody that somebody would talk to no i think i think you have just as much value as everybody else because you would be able to speak to people that aren't addicts that have family members of addicts and maybe get them to understand your perspective on it what you've been through your father was able to overcome it your father did a lot for the community so you would be able to give comfort for someone that might be looking to give up on a family member or might think it's their fault that their family member is the way they are you know what i'm saying so you have this just map value and in insight is just as just as an addict helping an addict plus you understanding the disease might even be comfortable for somebody that maybe might not want to talk to like me personally like the woman i would like to meet one day ideally right i mm -hmm. would like to be able to meet a woman that understands the disease but that isn't an addict but you know what i'm saying like someone that would be able to understand the struggle and how which much would have to be somebody that actually yeah. lived around somebody that was Yes, because not saying two addicts can't work together because it can, right. you know. It can be dangerous, me, though. Me, personally, I'd rather someone that understands the disease, understood the struggle, how much it takes to get out of that darkness and live the life that we're living. And also, you know what I'm saying, be able to be something I'm not be able to have me be able to have a crutch on something on it and be able to have that safety valve of being able to be like you know like i don't have to worry about you going to pick up if you go through something you know like that's just me personally that's just my own personal mm -hmm. preference mm -hmm. okay um and then the last question about the the sober app is is that all over the u.s it's all over the country uh, it's all, all over, over the, the country all over the all world over yeah, because it's on Apple and it's on Android. You know, like you could you could get the app in the Apple Store and you get the app in Android. So whatever country you're in, you download it to your phone, you'll have access to but it. But what if they don't? Do you have people that speak different languages? No, but you could always just get it translated into whatever. Like your phone is, it's going to translate it. I think pretty much automatically. I had to ask my CTO. That's actually uh, he's also one of the co-founders, Curtis. I have to ask him, but I'm pretty sure if you download it, it'll transfer over into whatever language your phone is in. Really? I got to double check. That's nice. Okay. Okay. Well, I think we can wrap it up here. Um, okay. What I I want to know. Because as you know, my podcast is called Life Struggles. What do you feel like your biggest life struggle has been? My biggest life struggle was the perception of what people thought about me. 
you know, so like there's a quote that I live by and it's by Oscar Wilde, great Irish poet. And it's be yourself, everyone else is taken. I wanted to be everybody else but myself. So that struggle and that fight with the man within and the man in the mirror was for almost 20 years because I was never my true authentic self. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm a quote unquote uh, creator of content, right? I create content that feeds my soul. I don't create content for likes. I don't do it for views. I don't do it for follows. You know, like I'm doing it for my soul. So my biggest life struggle was everything outside of myself. I made it attached to my identity. So when I lost those things, I lost my identity. My identity now is how I speak and treat myself and how I speak and treat people. That is what I'm going to be known for. That's what I'm going to leave this world doing. And that is what's making my life a lot easier these days. Okay. Have you, um, I'm going to give a suggestion. Do you, do you ever read? Of course, read everything inside. I think Albert Einstein said the man that doesn't read has no, no, the man that can read has no advantage over the man that can't read. Okay. I've, I've, have you heard of the ego cleanse? The ego cleanse? No. Amazing book. I think, I think every addict, every person in recovery should read it. Okay. But, um, it is Kindle. it is on amazon i can shoot Good. you that link too all right yeah definitely. Um, if you want and then i would love to hear back from you to hear what you think of it because it and you know what it doesn't even have to be for an addict because i read it because i interviewed the person that wrote it okay so i read it first before i you know even talked to them i keep it by my side uh, uh like just i i got a few books the Bible, of course, um, look a lot of things up in that. And then I have like two other books that I constantly bring back to, you know, look up things. That's one of them. Okay. It's, it's amazing. So, um, but I'm not going to tell you more than that because I'd really no, like you get to, to get yeah, it. I'll and, read it. I'll read it. I'll give you my little book report on it. And Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is one of the books I keep by my side. What's it called? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. You never heard of it? I have not. Wow. That's like, that's like one of the biggest selling, most sold books as far as like, uh, like CEOs and presidents and everything use that as their foundation for success. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Oh, yep. It came up right away. Yeah, of course it's gonna come up right away. It's been written in like eighty different languages. They got a whole foundation. Great book. It's on Audible. Yeah, I don't. I'm not too fond of Audible because I, I my attention span tends to go too quickly. I'm more of I gotta read it, highlight, reread it, take notes. That's, That's my learning technique. You know what? So there's been some authors that I've interviewed, and I had to hurry up and get it you know, read before I interviewed him. And so I, then I get it in audible so that I can listen to it and know, but I also get the, the other book. Sometimes it takes longer to get the book and, you know, to read that when you're reading a book, that's what I do. Like you do is I like, I like to highlight things and go back to things. And it, you know, if, if I only find out about this book a week before I'm going to interview somebody, there's no way I could get 
No, yeah. Me, me. I mean, not not saying that I'm a slow reader, but because I like to highlight things and go back yeah. to things. And so I, I listen to the audio first and, and I purchase the book so that I can then go in there and do my things. But um, so I, I hear you because I I'm a I'm a visual person, too. Yes. Um, I don't know if that's what you're calling yourself, but I'm very visual. I mean, I'm I'm a very hands-on, observe and report and type of person. That's how I lived my life. You know, I lived it with personal experiences. And most of my education comes from the street. Now I'm starting to get the academic career and things. But my 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 foundation is life experiences. And there's something you can't teach. So, like, I'm, yeah. I appreciate that I got that school of hard knocks in me, quote, unquote. There you go. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much. Um, it's It's been very interesting. It's been very knowledgeable. And I love, love, love what you're doing for everybody. So I'll make sure that I put the information in there so they can, well, we've talked about the app, but I still will put it in into our um, description. Okay. Okay, so they know that. where to go and get it. Um, you said it's on Apple and Google. Yeah, I I could send you the links or worst case scenario, if uh, people push to my Instagram page, right in my bio, you could, you'll, you'll get all the information on the Silver app. But I, I'll definitely send you all the information of everything that you, if you want to put in. Okay, so you want to tell everybody where they can uh, get a hold of you at, what your social media sure. stuff is? So uh, on Instagram, my handle is Mike, M-I-K-E, Fiore, F-I-O-R-E, 118. And on TikTok, it's Inspire, the number two, Inspire underscore for uh, my nonprofit. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really Thank you for having it. me. Thank you for yes. taking the time off today on a Sunday. And really have a good weekend. Me and, too. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing the episode come out. That's for sure. Okay. And I'll read that book and I'll get back to you with a book report. Yeah, I'd love to hear a review on it. Um, I, I love it. And maybe that's something that you can share to other people. Oh, 100%. That's why it's inspired to inspire. You know, right, you give them information, right. you pass it to the next person to help them on their journey so they can help the next person. Oh, and I want to tell you, this is not an ad, but you've probably been seeing me pick up a drink here. Yeah. It's called bubbly. I drink a lot of water. It's it's actually just water with some flavoring, except there's not any sweeteners or anything in it. Okay. I and drink one too. It's called ice. It's the same thing. It's, oh, I it's know what water. ice is. Yeah, I like that. I know what place. ice is. So, <laughs> but, but I think ice has calories and this has zero. Oh, so then, yeah, you're, you're doing better than me. That's for sure. No fat. No sodium, no carbohydrates, zero sugars. There's no hey, protein it's either. It's just hydrating. Okay, listen, we need them pH levels to be as high as we possibly could have. Yes, them. we do. Okay, well, you have an awesome night. You too. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. All right, bye-bye. Bye. And that's another wrap. I just want to say thank you to all of our listeners for staying right there with us. Sometimes these can get long, some longer than others. 
And maybe it's not something that you're going through, but it could be something that somebody else is going through. So if you like what you heard today, or you know somebody that might like to hear this or get something out of this, please make sure that you subscribe, share, and rate us so that we can continue to helping others conquer their life struggles. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Podbean. Can't wait to hear how you like this episode. Also remember, if you feel like you have a life struggle that you can share and help somebody else know that they are not alone and maybe give them some ideas on how to conquer their struggle, please email me at strugglesarehard. That's S-T-R-U-G-G-L-E-S-A-R-E-H-A-R-D all one word, at gmail.com.